This is Client Side from Fox Agency. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Sam Oakley is a marketing and product specialist, one of Creative England's 50 most creative entrepreneurs in the UK. He's also the co-founder of a multi-award winning marketing technology company. He has a deep understanding of the evolving fintech landscape and is now helping Bud, an open banking platform, gain deeper penetration into leading banks and offer better deals to the consumer in the process. Sam Oakley, welcome to ClientSide. Thank you, great to be here. Well, you've got a really interesting background and career. You work with one of the most disruptive fintech startups in the UK, and you've got a really deep appreciation of how the marketing of financial products and services is really evolving. Um, But you started your career in politics, of all things. How do you go from politics to fintech? (laughs) Uh, By a long and uh, sometimes tortuous route, I think. Uh, So I started off uh, with, um, uh, I started off after after university. I was uh, was working um, on a local election and one of the guys there was running the the campaigns around the regional referenda. Uh, and so my first job was working uh, comms from for like you doing youth comms uh, for for one of those campaigns, mm-hmm. uh, and that led me into uh, some time with local government uh, and eventually into PR agencies from there. Um, and then uh, from, during the, during my time at my last agency, Wolfstar, sort of, we noticed that. Um, there was a real challenge around some of the areas we were looking at with social analytics um, in that there was really poor provision within the market. So we brought in a developer to have a look at some of those problems. Um, and I run that project and eventually span that project out from the agency into a new company. And that was my last company, that was Stashmetrics, um, which we ran for four years mm-hmm. uh, before uh, we uh, wound it up. Um, and um, uh, in the process towards the end of Stash Metrics, uh, I was looking at fintech as a space, uh, and I've done some work within, within financial services in the PR space. Uh, I met the founders of Bud, and that was two years ago. The rest is history. Fantastic. Well, let's let's back up a little bit then and talk about Wolfstar because you said that you were you were there. Um, there were a social media agency um, at the time, and you were there for about seven years. Tell us about your time with the company. What was your role there and, and what did you learn? What did you take away from your experience at the agency? So Wolfstar was really one of the first agencies to be thinking about social media seriously from a, a public relations perspective and was making the argument then, and it was probably the right argument, um, that the, the natural home for um, a, a social media function within a business is within something that has that kind of earned mindset mm-hmm. um, and and P- PR is like the, the, sort of the obvious starting point for that. Um, so I joined Wolfstar um, as an account manager um, and left it as uh, one of the directors. Um, and over that seven years working with some awesome clients, you know, uh, Sony Mobile, uh, First Direct, the bank, Unilever, uh, lots of lots of great people, right. um, and you know it, it was one of those. It was it was one of those um, sort of a real kind of step change in in terms of the way I was thinking about marketing at the time, um, particularly towards the end of that when you started looking at it 
not so much from a marketing challenge perspective, but from a business challenge perspective. Um, and that was kind of where the whole stash metrics thing started. Huh, quite fascinating. So, so you, from your time after your time with uh, um, Wolfstar, you co-founded Stash Metrics, as you said. Tell us a little bit about the problems that you solved for your clients, and how did the company come about? So, I was working a lot on um, it, putting social media analytics uh, capabilities into into our clients' businesses, mm-hmm. um, and it was a really tough job because a lot of the early social media analytics tools are kind of obviously been built based by sort of engineers first looking at what questions we can solve and what you know what um, what value we can bring into a business, but they didn't they didn't answer the right questions from my perspective. So mm-hmm. that you know you could you could quite easily find out what everyone was saying about a given topic, but if you had a clear idea of who you were trying to target, what you couldn't do is find out what your target audience was saying about life in general. And from, mm. from my perspective as a, as a marketer that's trying to isolate and understand a target group of people and understand what they consider to be valuable and provide that value back through marketing campaigns, that was a really core function that just didn't exist. Mm. So we started start looking at that um and over the course of uh the the, t- the time we were working on it that kind of morphed into looking closely at small groups of people that really drove uh behavior change amongst wider groups of people so that ended up becoming a kind of uh, an influencer influence where right yeah where we basically build um a search engine where you could describe the audience you wanted to reach um, and it would then go and dry to dive down into all the data we had on that audience um, analyze the kind of things that they were interested in and try and, and find the people who were driving the kind of online behaviors within that audience sure let's talk a little bit about bud because bud is an open banking platform that uses customers transactional data to understand uh, where we can sort of help them save uh, money and give them better deals, i.e. if customers are paying too much for an electricity bill, it also improves your credit file in the process. Talk a little bit about the where the company is today and what is the company's mission? Okay, so um, going back to that kind of that point we we're making about, about aligned value chains, right? If you, if you look at the, the way that... Um, commercial banking, well, retail banking happens at the, at the moment. It's like the bank creates a value store by, by giving away free current account banking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in order, you know, most of the bank's costs are aligned, are aligned with that process. And most of the bank's profits or revenue is aligned with what they then do to try and degrade that, that, Value they've the value store that they've created by you know selling products, selling loans, mortgages, etc. Um, so what at Bud we're trying to do is to say that it doesn't have to be that way, right? There can be an alignment that is sure you, you you create the value store by providing the free current account banking, and then with the right level of data intelligence, you can understand 
what your customer is trying to achieve and you can align your revenue models to helping your customer do the things they're trying to do right? and whether that's introducing your own products great if it is but also introducing third-party products or uh, mm -hmm. helping with uh, robot advice or savings etc so what we try and do at bud is to provide that intelligence and the capacity to, to, to uh, fulfill with those third-party products. Hmm. We do open banking, you know, like we are an open banking platform, you're right, you were right to call it out like that, but from my perspective at least, the aggregation part of it, the, 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 the accessing the data, the transactional data, it's kind of commoditized now, like there's a lot of players doing that, and I don't want to, you know, it's still it's still hard, and it's still, um, it's still, still like, there's, there's definitely value in it, and a lot of the market is currently there but the real value the differentiation and um the the place where i reckon where you know i think bud is gonna really um sort of uh, start to rise above the pack is through the way that it deals with um the intelligence layer and then the distribution because you know accessing transactional data is really important right but it's still just data at that stage unless it has no inherent value back to the customer unless you can understand it and do something with it and that's where bud kind of steps in huh so i use ClearScore um, as an example. So talking about those third-party products, I use ClearScore to help improve my credit profile. But while using the app, I'm introduced to a lot of other services, be it loans, be it credit cards, be it uh, mortgages, etc. Are those the sort yeah. of third-party app uh, sort of products that you're that you're referring to? Once you yeah, uh, absolutely, um, right, absolutely. And you know, um, ClearScore have got a really good model in that in that way. I mean. The way that we're kind of looking at it is is a bit different to that in that, you know, we know that about 13, 14, sometimes up to sort of 16, 17% of people are willing to go off and, and um, get a, a standalone app to help them do things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but the vast majority of people are more are, are happier if they're just, they're happier not doing the thing, even if they want, even if they know that they want to do it they'd rather not do it because the hassle of going off and engaging with finances, you know, it, there's a huge amount of cognitive load involved. And mm -hmm. it's, it's, it really, it's, a, it's a complicated, intimidating thing to do. Mm -hmm. And there are people like yourself uh, and like many other kind of uh, tech savvy, uh, relatively after when I'm not making any comment about, about I wouldn't put myself in either of those those uh, categories, but anyway, continue. And when I say relative, I mean relative to the entire population. Sure. So, um, you know, there's a group that is always going to go off and is going to find those 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 the right products for them to help them. But there is a much much bigger group that isn't going to do that because engaging with their finances is frightening. Sure. Um, and like we're for those guys. Uh, so like we're trying to work with the bank that you already have to try and help that to start deliver those deliver those products and to and to be able to use like a lot of the intelligence that we can provide to make those journeys really really easy so that it, you don't have to be somebody who's going to be engaged with their finances you know the fact that you've got the clear score app puts you in easily the top sort of 
15% most engaged with their finances people in the country. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, I mean, like, the fact that you're willing to do that, like, it, yeah. it just puts you in a, in a, like, a minority of people who are, who are, who are willing to get, to get involved and tackle that. You That's know? really interesting. We, we, did a, we did a survey of uh, millennials about a couple, of year, a couple of years ago talking about the kind of, the, the financial, like, anxieties that they have and that mm -hmm. kind of thing. And, like, the, the reticence to actually um, to actually engage with their finances was was quite was quite astonishing. You know, they were referring to it like the hover, where you, your thumbs kind of <laughs> hovering over the bank app, right. and you don't know whether to press it and see your balance or not because you don't really want to see your balance. Finance is so emotive. Money is probably the most emotive subject uh, on the planet. You know, it's it's filled with so much baggage, and I think organizations and companies like yourselves that are tackling that space you have to deal with the emotional psychological baggage that comes along with managing money yeah absolutely i mean like so a bud when we're when we're taking a use case into a bank or something like that um we've got our own uh, our own app our own uh, personal financial management pfm app um that we use to test out like new ideas and um you know, new kind of uh, like services, that kind of thing. Um, so, a lot of what we're trying to do is to, to understand, you know, how can we really be like unashamedly consumer first in the way we think. Mm -hmm. uh, so, we we invest quite heavily in um, in building and maintaining and engaging with the users of our own app, and that kind of keeps us honest in that respect. You know, we we. If we're taking a use case into a bank, it's because we know it works. Hmm. Quite, quite fascinating. You've you've grown significantly over the last two years. When, when you joined, there were fifteen people. There are now eighty-five. Uh, but has grown in awareness and reputation over that period of time as well. Tell us what role did marketing play in in that growth, and how have agencies supported you in that in that transition? Good question. Um, I guess a lot of that depends on how you define marketing uh, in terms of what role has that played, because obviously our brand has been part of it. But, you know, when you're a small startup in a, in a scene where a lot of people um, know each other, there's a, there's a huge bleed between like the brand and the product and the people. Um, you know, it's difficult to just like attribute sure. progress to any one of them. I mean, mm -hmm. certainly when I joined when I joined Bud, it was already sort of a well-known startup within the fintech space because, you know, the founders and, and the people here were were known for sort of talking sense, being different uh, from the kind of, you know, being in a banking world, but being a bunch of hipsters from East London in, <laughs> in their, in their mid-twenties sure. um, with this kind of crazy ambition to go out and, like, disrupt the entire banking system and Interesting. Somehow, somehow being successful at it, despite the fact that, you know, there was a, certainly a lot of like, uh, sort of, I think a lot of surprise about, about how quickly Bud quick gained traction. Um, but once that happened, like that really started to cement the beginnings of a, of a kind of challenger brand in the software as a service space. Hmm. Um, um, and so a lot of what I did from the, in the early marketing activity was about trying to keep that section of the brand 
moving forward but then to also try and add in some more kind of robustness to it as we started to work with bigger banks and they you know they don't want like they don't want a kind of that kind of aggressive level disruption mm-hmm. what they want is someone who's going to be who's going to be able to innovate at pace but be able to do that in a collaborative way and so you know i think that process was already underway by the time i by the time i joined but a lot of like the early focus of what i was doing was in, was in furthering that really interesting and and what mix of agencies have you used or did you use to sort of help you take you on that journey quite a lot i mean like our biggest agency engagement um was with a pr agency mm-hmm. um, so we worked with hotwire for about um uh probably about eight months nine months something like that um particularly around our series a because we knew that that was like a a real inflection point for the business uh, and it needed to be handled in a sensitive way interesting um so so there was that we also use um like we're a small team so we uh we use agencies to kind of outsource stuff that i think you know particularly in a a team our size you'd normally have um you'd normally have it in-house like our uh managing our pay-per-click and that kind of thing a lot of the lead gen stuff basically uh, gets gets outsourced. But like recently, we've been working with a kind of disaggregated agency model. So mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, a lot of our inbound funnel is built around content marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have uh, sort of HubSpot at the center of that. Um, and um, uh, I work with um, some journalists from the space who who I just know we're going to be able to write really on point um, uh, copy and, and 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 who know like who know the people to go and talk to to make sure, sure that what we're writing is genuine thought leadership because sure. I think like there's a lot there's a lot of like bad content on the internet so content marketing if you're going to do it you know if you're going to call it thought leadership it has to actually be thought leadership it mm-hmm. can't just be kind of cutting out the opinions that uh, you hear at conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has to be well researched original content yeah. uh sort of yeah. yeah backed by data which is very hard for a lot of organizations to do especially if they are um you know cash straps you know they don't have a huge amount of uh, of of investment to do this how what's your approach to creating original thought leadership that is differentiated in the market so we have a we have a rule where uh, sort of a final check before anything goes into production, which is like, does this add to the sum total of knowledge that is out there about whatever mm. it's about? Like, and if it doesn't, then we doesn't go into production because there's no point in, you know, there's no point in in producing something that is just going to parrot something that somebody else has already said. Mm-hmm. Um, like it goes back to the whole kind of understand your community, understand what value is, right? We sell to some people who are highly intelligent, highly engaged, really time poor. They don't have um, they don't have the, the time or the inclination, to be honest, to be sort of engaging in marketing activity with that that doesn't in somehow help them get on with their job. So you know, yeah, we frame things a bit differently. Um, mm-hmm. We uh, like all of that kind of the, the stuff we were talking about, like the early genesis of the brand, where it was quite a kind of human-centric thing. You know, we, 
we make sure that 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 stays uh, as a, like a, a central part of, of any content we produce. So. You know, we work with a couple of really good photographers. Um, so when we're you know doing an interview with somebody from the industry, we're not just getting the kind of um, headshot that they use on LinkedIn or whatever. <laughs> we're getting that kind of a sense of what it's like to talk right. to that person. Makes but sense. There's, there's, kind of, there's that kind of human-centric element of it. Yeah. And then you know we we bring everything back to how it affects the consumer, the end the end customer. So we use insights and user flows from the app a lot. You know, a lot of uh, that kind of um, a lot of that kind of work uh, goes into producing our content. But the real asset test is, you know, if I'm I download this, or if I sign up to this webinar, or if I come to this event, sure. and I'm at the digital lead at a major bank, do I leave with something I didn't know before? Sure. And is that thing useful and relevant to me in my life? And that's the key, isn't it, with thought leadership and with content? It's how do I uh, increase, add more value to the prospect's life more than sort of what, uh, you know, over and above what they had before they engaged with our brand. Um, Absolutely. And, and that is, for me, how we build a, how we build the kind of brand that, mm. that, like a modern brand, is built by repeated touch points where each of those touch points has value. Add value, yeah. 100%. So so if there was a really creative, super hot content agency, thought leadership, and they knew, look, if we get in front of Bud, we can you know, change their approach to content marketing, improve the way that things are done, but they're not on your radar at the moment. What's the best way for them to get on your radar and sort of add that value to you? Tell me something I don't know about my audience. Interesting. You know, come, to me, come to me saying, We've been speaking to the following digital directors at banks, or the following, you know, CTOs at, at, at startups, or you know, people who they like. It's pretty obvious who we sell to if you if you do even like some cursory research, right? So, if you come to me and say, "We've got this original piece of insight, and here's how we can turn that into uh, a campaign," that you know, that that's obviously going to start. That's that's going to get my attention pretty quick hmm. quite quite fascinating and when let's say you progress one step further um and you're actually interested in this agency and maybe there are a couple of other agencies that you're looking at as well what is your approach to uh selecting hiring uh, and ultimately choosing a winning agency i think it's interesting so Back when I was working in an agency, I think I had a pretty clear idea of what it was people wanted when we were pitching to them. And then uh, having gone through this, the, like running the startup and um, doing a lot of investment pitching, obviously, uh, you know, we, we raised like somewhere around a million pounds in, in um, venture capital. Mm -hmm. And sort of going through that process and then coming here to Bud where um marketing budget you know is it is a huge investment for us um i think it's really interesting to take some of the kind of the principles of, of like a startup deck um uh, and a startup investment deck that is and, and if you apply those to how you pitch so you know 
show me the size of the opportunity. Show me why this is a fantastic idea. Mm. But equally, like I'm making a huge investment if I bring on an agency from a, you know, on a kind of a relative basis, you know, if I were to bring on an agency, I'd be bringing on an agency that would be using up 60 to 70% of my marketing budget. Hmm. So it's like huge decision. A lot, a lot of the startup, a lot of the startup um, stuff, in, stuff in the startup pitch decks is about de-risking why you're the person or why your product is the right bet to go off and take that opportunity. It's, it's I'd say, you know, in a ten, in a ten slide, ten slide uh, pitch deck to a to an investor, you know, you're going to spend two slides on the opportunity, two slides on the product, and six slides on on de-risking why that product is the right bet. Um, and I think a lot of agencies, firstly, come in with kind of if I can if I can ask someone for half a million quid in ten slides. You know, I'm pretty sure you can pitch to me a marketing idea in 10 slides. <laughs> um, and secondly, like, if you think about the way that an agency pitches, they're gonna mm. they're gonna they're gonna spend they're gonna do a load of creds, which is useful. It's partly, I guess, that's part of the de-risking process. Right. Yep. Um, but agencies need to start getting way more savvy about the way that they handle their own campaign data. You know, I had an agency come to me a while ago, and it it was like you know, it was a shame we didn't end up end up working together. But um, like one of the things I really loved about their pitch is that they were they said, you know, we run this campaign, this kind of campaign, you know, sixty times in the last three years, and here's our benchmarks for like what it's going to cost to get these kind of levels of uh, of 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 outputs and outcomes from it. And because you know, they you have all this really useful proprietary data if you're willing to kind of pull it between campaigns as mm. an agency. I think a lot of a lot of agencies don't do a particularly good job of um, like uh, the data architecture within the business, like understanding how data from the data that they've, they've harvested from one campaign can and should sure. inform both planning and uh, sort of the expectation levels of, of another campaign. Mm-hmm. That's that's really quite fascinating. And and just on that point, you know, if you are you, you mentioned that you work with Hotwire PR uh, to content agencies or sort of at least journalists to create thought leadership. So it seems as though that you're, you're using a lot of different types of agency services. Is your view to use one full service integrated agency where you can go have one point of contact and everything under one roof or do you prefer to work with specialist agencies in you know that have a focus in on different uh, service areas I'm pretty agnostic to be honest um, you know the full service agency model obviously has its has its benefits um, but from my perspective I'm not too fussed about how those teams are put together what I want is the right team you know, and if that is a team of, in, you know, for example, for that piece of content I'm working on at the moment, it's uh, four quant researchers, uh, two journalists, two photographers, uh, graphic designer, uh, SEO specialist. Uh, you know, and they're all they're all they're none of them work for the for the same agency, 
but there's one project manager who's put it all together. Um, uh, and so he's essentially got a uh, got a, a, a full service agency there. Now, from my perspective as a client, I need to see that team working together and gelling, but there are so many like good digital um, versions of, you know, good digital ways to, to, to make that clear to a client now. Like we use um, Asana quite heavily um, within within that team. Mm. And it, you know, we all know what everyone's doing. We all know what needs to get done. We all know when it needs to get when it needs to get done by, and um, you know who needs to approve what, etc. Like that's a well-run project. It doesn't it doesn't need to necessarily exist within the confines of some brick walls mm. somewhere in West London for it for them for <laughs> to bring that sure. kind of level of expertise together. Now, I guess the the kind of the caveat to that is that. Where, where a full service agency does have a, you know, a, a, an advantage over that model, is what I what I was talking about earlier with that kind of data warehousing and 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 how a full service agency can add a strategic layer um, that maybe a kind of disaggregated model uh, doesn't have access to. Hmm. Really, really interesting. And then just just going back to. Obviously, you work with you've worked with a number of agencies over the years. Um, what is the best way for agencies to get the best out of you, their client, um, and what is the best way for you to get the best out of out of them? The working relationship. Talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah, yeah, I guess like you've probably uh, heard this a lot, but um, being honest with me, um, setting expectations that are re that are reasonable and if my expectations of the agency are not reasonable hmm. letting me know okay like, i guess you know saying yes to too much stuff uh is sure. a mistake from, from an agency sure. yeah yeah uh and, and being unafraid to, being unafraid to push back and say no, that, that's not going to work um, and, and in but, your mind in your mind does that Add more value to the agency because they're able to push back with you know from from that perspective because for a lot of agencies they just say yes to clients because they want they seem like that's the best way to impress them but actually is the better way of impressing the client actually pushing back when they believe that you know yeah. a course of action is is not not the right one yeah absolutely I mean like I'm if I'm hiring an agency I'm I'm paying you at least as much for your expertise as I am for your time. So you're thinking, um, right? And yeah, yeah I def definitely there's an element of small in-house marketing team can't, don't have the resource to get everything done in-house. So some of it is just like, I need bodies to, you know, to, to create do, this do stuff. stuff. Right. Do this stuff. But a huge element of it is someone who can provide like a foil to my thinking and to who, who can help me to uh, see strategic elements that I haven't seen. You know, when you're when you're inside a business day in day out, mm. it's really hard to maintain that kind of level of perspective that somebody who works on eight or nine different clients has got. Mm. And that's a that's a huge advantage that an agency, uh, you know, an, an agency account director has over, say, their client is that you know their client is going to be 
absolutely knee deep in the details of their day to day. Sure. And that level of perspective is really valuable. Hmm. How, how do you know that you're not overpaying for agency services? Um, yeah, I, I don't know that you do. Um, like, again, that comes down to expectation, expectation setting and delivery, right? Like, mm. in the end, I think overall or underpaying is 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 kind of a bit of a red herring because what they're they're delivering something that has value into the business. Sure. And if that is fair value, then you're not then you're not overpaying or you know or underpaying. I think the there's, you get kind of quite a lot of price harmonization anyway between agencies because I think they all know what each other charge for stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but broadly speaking, like if an agency were to come to me with a wildly different charging model than other agencies and be able to explain that because this is the value that they're going to bring into the business and therefore this is why you know uh this is why the agency is worth that money i have to make a business case when i'm bringing on an agency to do a project or to do you know to work with us on a retained basis or whatever that is you know and if that business case is solid, the business case is solid. I'm not taking it I'm, when I'm taking that business case internally. I'm not taking it to people who have worked with agencies before. Sure. So there's no level of kind of expectation of what that's going to be. It there's like the, the difficult the difficulty from my perspective is to go in and go. This is why this is valuable. And if an agency can can articulate that in a um, you know in a succinct way, then I, I have no issue with looking at alternative pricing models. Sam, final question before we get into our quick fire round at the end of the interview. Let's talk a little bit about fintech um, and open banking and specifically challenger banks like Monzo and Starling. They've raised the bar for customer experience and now what we expect from banking services as a whole, but they're still struggling to get users to really fully use their services in a meaningful way i.e put all of their salaries into their bank into their accounts in in what other ways are those challenger banks making money and becoming profitable um well i mean in terms of becoming profitable they're not Hmm. Uh, i think you know all all of the major all of the major challenger banks banks are are still loss making really um i think yeah, I think oh, wow. Starling is is is, is uh, getting close to break even. Um, I think they're predicting break even this year. Um, uh, you, know, but, you know, I think Monzo just went in. And, uh, there was, a, there was a, a large raise recently. Same with same with Starling. Oh. Um, Revolu just just raised a huge sum of money um, at an enormous valuation. Um, but you know, broadly speaking, um, if you look at and this is a massive oversimplification, but but banks make money by uh, borrowing short term and lending long term. Sure. So you, know, you you put money into your current account, and if enough other people have money in their current accounts, they know what level of liquidity they have to to lend out, and then they lend sure. someone that money in in a mortgage. Um, and you know that's the kind of the fundamental kind of retail banking model. The blocking um, and tackling of the banking. Yeah. 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 So, uh, if you look at um, banks like Monzo and, and Starling, uh, the challenge for them 
is to get people to kind of hold decent amounts of, of cash in their accounts. Mm. And, and like, I don't have any stats to support this, but my, my gut feel is that that's not happening at the moment in the, mm. most banks, most of these, most of the customers of these challenger banks um, are using it as a kind of a cool way of, of managing spending. Um, so money yeah. goes in at the, at the beginning of the month when they shortly after they've been paid yeah. um, and gradually gets eroded throughout the month and then they get a top up, um, which, is a, which is a really challenging model for them to actually go out and make money from. So there are some people who um, are starling are now making, um, I think what they describe as like a material amount of money. I don't know what that means, um, <laughs> but making they're making at least some money from, from their marketplace. Um, which is, you know, very much in kind of marketplace 1.0 at the moment, where they've got some products sitting inside their bank their their bank app that you can use if you're interested in them, uh, and they will then get a, uh, a an introduction fee from the third party provider. Uh, so I think they have, a, for example, a wealth uh, a, a integration with Wealth Simple for um, stocks and shares ISIS. Hmm. Um, 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 but is that just because well, we're not comfortable enough with the new challenger banks yet? I mean, you know, I mean, I opened my bank with NatWest or Barclays when I was like seven years old and I've known them my whole life. Starling has just been around since yesterday. So there's, there's, there's an unease with putting all of my salary, my hard earned cash into yeah. a company that's just been around for, you know, 12 months. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, you know, what is it? People, uh, people think emotionally way faster than they think yeah. logically. You know, yeah. the fact that Starling's got an FSCS guarantee and your um, your savings are, are guaranteed up to I think it's like eighty grand or something like that. If Starling goes under, it's like doesn't really matter to somebody who's looking at it going, yeah, but I've already got a bank. <laughs> Who are you? Right, exactly. <laughs> but you know, so, so marketplace is definitely uh, marketplace is definitely uh, a thing that's going to happen, and, mm -hmm. and you know, Starling's marketplace will get will will get better you know there's no doubt there's no doubt about that and you know i can definitely see uh, a place within say the next year or so uh whereby starling will be able to tell that i've consistently got you know 100 quid left in my account at the end right. of the month and suggest that i deposit that into a savings account you know those kind of contextual prompts will massively increase product pickup rate massively huh. so i think i think there's a there's marketplace as a model like and then the other thing is that um, so Monzo recently uh, brought back their kind of premium services. So like the kind of, you know, the bundle of paid for stuff that you can that a, a customer can pay for, which turns them into a kind of a mixture between a bank and a, and a software as a service type business um, or, you know, a service business in general, I guess. Um, uh, and, you know, I think they've had not just Monzo, but Challenger Banks have had mixed success, some 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 good um some not so with with bringing in these kind of bundles um certainly some of the stuff that uh like revoluted around their like metal card you know the kind of yeah. um the, the status symbol sure. banking that that's always going to have a place um and there's there's ways of making money off that like revolu are really good at um, upselling within their app onto the premium and then mm -hmm. onto the, the the metal um the metal plans if you've ever gone into their app and tried to do anything that like beyond beyond the core function that you first downloaded it for, it's like 
this this seems like a really cool idea and you get three three quarters of the way into the user journey mm-hmm. to start doing it and then then it's like oh yeah but it is 6.99 a month if you want to do it so like that's, that's a brilliant a brilliant way of a brilliant way of, of handling that okay. um from a business perspective and you know from a from a customer perspective as well i think that those they've they've struck a reasonably good way of like of adding a fair amount of value for a fair price mm. uh within those bundles like monzo did it and then and then then retired it as a product and now they're bringing it back so like i think it's still to be seen um as to what value uh that's going to add hmm. really interesting so, sam let's get into our quick fire round i'll fire some questions at you and if you can fire some answers back that will be yeah. fantastic um single biggest thing that you love about working with agencies and what do you hate about working with agencies uh i love working with bright vibrant engaged enthusiastic people uh and agencies are full of them mm-hmm. um what do i hate about working with agencies? i don't really hate anything okay. like hate's a strong word i find it i find it i find it yeah i find it i find it frustrating when um uh, agencies uh, overpromise and underdeliver in order to get mm-hmm. overpromise in order to get the business, and then really struggle to deliver against those promises. When you know, if they had understood what my value bar was, uh, they could have managed expectations better. Hmm. What are you most optimistic about about the future of fintech, and what are you least optimistic about? Um, I think fintech is gradually and painfully becoming more diverse and in the process is um, focusing more on providing good outcomes for a broader variety of people. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good space in terms of um, the level of risk profile that you have when you first become a fintech is, is frightening, you know, like huge percentages of fintech never even get to never even get to angel funding rounds. Um, and in order to that, that's a really good kind of filter for um for finding people who really understand the group of people really understand the problem and who are who are really good at solving that um so like it's a really good way of forcing somebody forcing a company to be really customer focused so mm-hmm. you know fintech is is brilliant at delivering a specific good outcome for a specific group of people and if we can find a way of of making that sort of mass market and and delivering it in a way that more people can get access to, then um, you know I think it's got a really bright future. Hmm. If you didn't have a career in marketing, financial services, products and services, what would you be doing with your career? Uh, I make beer uh, okay. at the moment. Uh, so yeah, I, I would I'd become a full-time brewer. Fantastic. I'd grow a beer and get tapped. <laughs> I'd join you. Um, and and what's the single final question? What's the single biggest thing that you're yet to achieve that you would like to achieve in your career? Um, I'd like to go back into politics at some point. Hmm. Uh, I remember working on a, a, a campaign like really really early on uh, at Wolfstar where um, there was there's a disease called pleural plaques. It's to do with asbestosis, uh, and you used to get compensation if you developed pleural plaques, and then the Association of British Insurers lobbied and, and that got changed. Uh, and we worked with a pressure group to get that changed back. And that was it. That was an awesome feeling. That moment of like the work that the work that you've done 
going back into a you know going into a law book and and changing lives sure. for people you know yeah. so yeah. i'd love to i'd love to get some more work done in public policy fascinating really fascinating um sam thank you so much for doing this not at all thanks for having me really enjoyed it if you'd like to share any comments on this episode or any episode of client side then find us online at fox.agency if you'd like to appear on the show please email millie at fox.agency the people that make this show possible are millie bell our booker slash researcher paul blanford our creative director ben fox is our executive producer I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Client Side from Fox Agency. Join us next time on Client Side, brought to you by Fox Agency.